Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of LSAT Pros. I'm Steve Schwartz from the LSAT blog. And I'm Graham Blake from LSAT Hacks, and we're here to answer your LSAT questions today. Yeah, great. All right, so let's take a look at this first one here. The questioner writes, took the LSAT in September and scored a 170. I was prep testing an average of 175. I'm retaking in November and want to know which prep tests I should study with. I've exhausted 19 through 84. Should I do 1 to 19, or should I redo the ones I've already done, which I did back in the beginning of my studies a few months back? My initial take on this is that prep tests 1 to 19 are really old, and if you've just got about a month or a few weeks until test day, you're probably better off served by doing the most recent exams and budgeting out perhaps the ones in the 70s through the 80s and focusing on reviewing those. Yeah, I'm inclined to think the same thing. I, I think repetition is actually highly valuable and people don't do enough of it. Um, I rarely see a fresh prep test these days, but I'm still learning stuff by redoing things. So I agree that you just maybe sit down, see when they've like most recently done the recent ones and just redo those. Um, and then if they want to gauge their score, they could do an early one. Uh, do you think like the early tests are still useful as a score gauge even or not really? I think they're of limited usefulness just because the raw score conversions are different. The The cohort of test takers was different 20 years ago. If you're going back to exam number one or exam number 10, that's really at this point 25, even my God, close to 30 years at this point. So the test taking pool has changed a lot. So the raw score conversions are not as representative. And I also think the exam has probably gotten harder on average over the years as, te as test takers have gotten more prepared. So they're not really useful as a score gauge, and the the nature and the tone of the exam is different as well. Yeah, that's right. If people study more, then that cohort you talked about is going to be tougher to compete against, and so the newer ones are more representative of what your modern cohort is. Uh, there is one often overlooked exam if people want like a more modern cohort in the Super Prep 2. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe it's like the third test is... It's like some unnamed, formerly undisclosed test that's probably like in the 60s or somewhere around there. Yeah, and if students are looking for that, I think it's referenced typically as C2. If okay. you want to look for that, it's probably it's probably was administered in the last 5, 10 years or so. So going back to like 2013 through 2018, something along those lines. And so that's probably a fairly recent exam that could be useful. There's also actually, if you're looking for additional exams, there's also the LSAT India yeah, there are and, six exams from there. You were going to say something? Well, do you think those are more or less useful than like LSAT 1 to, to 19? That's a, that's a good point. They're, they're, they're probably more recent than 1 through 19, but they're of limited usefulness in part because they're on, there are only four answer choices per question rather than five because it's used for undergraduate law school in India. So it's not necessarily something you want to be doing but if you're really just racked for exams and want more material that is something to consider yeah and um i, I just also want to add that like i think the lsat is well, i guess kind of like riding a bicycle like you're not going to get massively worse at it so if this student's already scored 170 and they were pting in the 175 ish they're not going to suddenly drop to like 163 um so they don't really need to measure their score they just need to basically Heck, they could probably not even study and just take it again. And by randomness, they'd probably get a better score. <laughs> um, but yeah, so just reviewing the more recent materials is probably the most important thing is the bottom line. 
Yeah, the funny thing about when students are taking exams, they often really are concerned about having contaminated previously used material and then not getting an accurate gauge because there could be a, a little bit of score inflation. But like you said, Graham, the, the value in doing exams is not so much for measuring your score. It's, I would argue, the benefit is in making mistakes and then having the opportunity to learn from those mistakes, to spot errors in your thinking and give yourself the chance to screw up so you can see what traps LSAC is laying that you're likely to fall for. Because if you fell for it before, you'll probably fall for it again unless you learn from your mistake in the process of detailed review. Yeah, and like, and especially in a retake uh, situation. Like if you're just starting out and you're at like 152 and you want to get to 170, like you do need to measure your score to see how it's going. But when you're retaking, it's much more about like, how do I avoid those repeating traps like you talked about? Yeah, definitely. All right, I think we want to take a look at the next one. Yeah, so someone says, this is also not a new person. It's not like I only miss a certain question type. Therefore, I'm having a tough time IDing my weaknesses, figuring out why I get questions wrong, and consequently, what to work on in order to improve. So, yeah, I would say question types, like, most people aren't bad at, like, one question type versus another. Um, you can do, like, score analysis things with spreadsheets or online stuff, and most people just kind of get hard questions wrong and easy questions right. Um, so, it's not that there's not things that you're good and bad at, but question types are the wrong thing to look at. Um and I would say a weakness is anything where you look at it and you don't feel like you could explain it to someone else. And that's a really high standard and like it's it's hard and people shy away from that. But I think that's how you should look for what a weakness is. Not just like, do I feel like in my mind, like I understand this, but could I explain it to someone? And you can try this just like, you know, grab someone in your household, grab a friend and like explain, have them read a question and explain it. And pretty quickly the wheels will fall off if you are uh, misleading yourself about the extent of your knowledge. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. You've got to be able to put it into your own words. That's part of why writing out your own explanations as process, as part of your review process can be really useful because you're forcing yourself to articulate it in your own words. That is the true mark of understanding, whether you're writing it out or, as you said, Graham, whether you're explaining it to someone else. Those are both great strategies. And sometimes you're getting questions wrong, not because they're of a particular question type, but just because it's the, a, a difficult method of reasoning, for example. Or it could be something about the topic of the question. Those are all factors that can play in. It can also relate to your level of fatigue as you work through a, sec a section or what else you were doing that day. There are lots of reasons why you get questions wrong. It's not just about question types. I think that becomes overemphasized sometimes with prep. Yeah, and I think a good thing to do is to try and keep like some sort of a log I've noticed that a lot of students that score much better have done this. I don't mean that it's got to be like a spreadsheet or a specific paper notebook or anything like that, but they have some kind of logging. So they're like just tracking like, oh, this type of question gave me trouble or I should go back to this and like learn the lesson that is there to learn there because you won't just remember everything that you've learned and move on. Like you've got to review stuff at some point and um, just forcing yourself to log stuff makes you more thoughtful about what you're missing and helps you see those things that are your weaknesses. Yeah, and as part of your review process, you can actually write out the lesson learned from that review of that question. So you could say, I, I misread something or I missed a, a keyword or I misunderstood what was a sufficient indicator when it was actually a necessary condition indicator or the language was too strong or I confused a could for a must Whatever that major takeaway is that 
thematic or conceptual takeaway, you want to articulate that for yourself so that you can spot it again when it comes up in the future. Definitely. Uh, I haven't got anything else here. Um. Yeah, same. I think I've recovered that one well. Oh, got a question here about logic games. I've come to a point where if I spend enough time on a game, I can easily crack it. However, I tend to overdo the amount of time I spend and don't know when to stop coming up with scenarios. What's an easy way to cut off time spent in this section when I honestly feel I need as much time as possible? How can I determine when to stop making deductions? So that's a, that's a pretty common question here. I think that the key is that you don't want to just draw random hypothetical scenarios. A lot of times students will take the rules and if there's a conditional rule, they'll start drawing out a scenario that represents a partial consequence of that conditional statement. But the issue is that you don't know whether that sufficient condition is actually being activated or not. So you're, and you end up just drawing a random hypothetical that may or may not be useful over the course of the game. I think it's much more useful to see what are some general things that must be true for any hypothetical and put those on your main diagram. And maybe you can split the game into multiple major diagrams, like maybe two to four scenarios, something along those lines, and then you see what could happen within each of those. But you've got to remember that one random hypothetical you draw is not the only possibility for a game. Yeah, I totally agree, because there's probably, like, for most games, about 70 different hypotheticals that could be combined into, so I just stick to drawing what must be true. And I think for more uh, for a practical way of, like, practicing doing this, like, I don't know, when I see a question like this, it kind of reminds me of someone asking, like, you know, how do I know when to stop cooking a recipe? Um, <laughs> like, it feels analogous to that, and that if you're following a recipe, you know, there's a clear stop point where you just you stop throwing ingredients in and you don't throw in any more of the ingredients because you've done what the recipe said. Um, the hard thing with the L side is there isn't a recipe, but how you can learn that is by redoing games and mastering old setups so that you start to see like what the set of must be true deductions is in a variety of games so that you get a repertoire and you start to get a feeling for like okay these are all the must be true things because for you know for some things if it's like r must be in three then that's like obviously a must be true and you can obviously draw it but then there's like a little bit more of a gray area where it's like well should i split this into two scenarios like am i just making a random hypothetical if i do or is this like a valuable hinge point and for that sort of thing which does fall into must be true when it is a good split um that's where like redoing games to like find good setups uh is very valuable in teaching you like basically the how-tos of doing a setup yeah i agree it's kind of a feel thing that comes with practice as you do more and more games but i agree with what you said about the, the hinge i think of it as a wedge where there might be a major rule or inference that you can use to, to systematically and methodically split the game into those multiple main diagrams and you stop when it feels right. You stop when you're not able to carry it any further. Whatever your stopping point is, that's it. For pretty much any game, or the vast majority at least, you can make some sort of inference up front, but don't carry it any further than you naturally can. A lot of times you'll see explanations out there where people have their various perfect ways of solving a game. But a lot of times when people are writing explanations or recording explanations, they've seen the game multiple times and that might impact their ideal way of, of solving it. 
but you might not, of course, not be able, might not be able to do that. But you don't have to do that for every game. Maybe you solve one or two games hyper efficiently, and that gives you the time to solve the other games a little bit less efficiently, where you might need to draw more hypotheticals over the course of the game. Yeah, um, that's a good point. I would say, like, I don't always. If you look at my logic games explanations, I do tend, you know, I've obviously had time to look at them, so they do tend to be sort of as perfect as I can make them, but I don't always do that when I make my own drawings. But I think a key point is that I err on the side of less so that if I am not sure whether there are more deductions or not, I'll usually just start doing the game. And sometimes a deduction will occur to me, um, but I don't just sit there and start drawing idly. That doesn't tend to lead anywhere. Yeah, I agree. You don't want to draw idly. You don't want to draw randomly. And I would agree that it's safer to err on the side of drawing less upfront because you can always draw more hypotheticals or make more inferences over the course of solving the game itself. Yeah. And I just wanted to give people like a couple of practical tips on finding those hinge points because, uh, you know, it's a bit esoteric when we talk about like uh, just draw it if it's good and don't do it if it's bad. <laughs> um, so there, there are two things that I find tend to make me split into multiple game setups. One is if there's like, a single sufficient conditional rule or like a single sufficient necessary conditional rule. So, you know, if there's multiple conditional rules then those probably are like combining somehow or something, but if the game just has one, I find if you just draw the sufficient condition happening and then draw a scenario where the sufficient condition doesn't happen, then that tends to lead to some stuff. So what I mean is like, say K was in group three, you draw one scenario with K in group three and one scenario where you've got a not rule saying no K in group three, because that's the rule happening and not happening. And if you do that, the, the way the games are set up, that tends to lead to a whole bunch of chaining deductions, especially in the scenario where like K is in group three. Yeah, the, I love it, Graham. When K is on, th oh, I'm sorry, continue. No, go ahead. I've got one more, but you can comment on that. I was just going to say for that one, that's also something I recommend as well. You, you end up having two possibilities. K on three, of course, is likely to be a bit more fleshed out than K not on three. Let's say if it was an ordering game. Because if K is not on 3, it might be anywhere from 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, 7. But when K is on 3, you'll be able to flesh that one out more. But the key here is to also have drawn out the scenario where K is not on 3. You don't want to forget that scenario as well. Yeah. And this sometimes confuses people because they think it should be like, oh, K is on 3. And then the other one is like, I don't know, uh, K is somewhere else or... They're, they're wondering like how did we get this k is not on three but it's just because it's all the other scenarios where we don't have that conditional condition don't have k on three um and the other thing where we can get like a hinge point is where something can only be one of two ways and the most obvious case will be just something like i don't know l is first or l is seventh and if you just draw both of those scenarios usually some deductions will come in but you also want to watch out for like other things where they don't explicitly tell you this is this way or this is the other way. Um, but if you think about it, you're like, oh, well, actually, I guess there's only two ways this one factor could play out. In fact, the conditional rule that I talked about, where there's just one conditional statement, uh, that is actually a there's only two ways. Either a conditional happens or it doesn't happen. So that's actually like a subset of the only two ways rule. But that those tend to be the main ways I split. I'm not... I don't really tend to go for like three or four scenario games. Some people do. That's not illegitimate if that's how you think. But I tend to go on like two splits. 
a lot of times I'll I'll go between two and four typically. So I'm someone who tends to do more splits up front. That's just my personal style. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's not for everyone. Different people should try out different techniques and see what works for them. But sometimes I'll find that I'll have two main scenarios and then one or both of those could be split further. So if we have you know major diagram one, major diagram two, then you can split those into one A and one B, two A, two B. And maybe you can split further and further, but then it becomes a question of how far you want to go given limited time. There's only so much you want to do up front. I do have an idea on another wedge or hinge that you could use though, which is if you have a block of variables, if two vari- of two or three variables must appear consecutively, then and you have a limited number of slots overall, then the, the various positions of that block of entities could help you split into multiple major diagrams, especially when in combination with other rules. And the idea of making wedges or hinges is kind of like a an exaggeration or a deepened version of what simple a simple inference is. A lot of times, uh, you'll have an inference stemming from the com- from the appearance of a variable appearing in multiple rules. If a variable appears in multiple rules, it's likely that you can link those rules together in some way to make an inference, and from there, you might use that inference to create your wedge or hinge. Mm-hmm. And. Yeah, that's a good one. Like, I actually hadn't thought of that, but that is a good way of splitting in multiple scenarios. And I think this is, like, a good example of how when you're listening to outside advice, like, don't take anyone's word as categorical because Steve and I have split on how we do this. But what that means is probably that, like, our brains just work in different ways to the same goal. And so you listening to this, you don't know if your brain works the same way as the, like, LSAT person telling you to do a certain thing. And so when you seek out advice, you should think, like, is this helping me or not? Because, like, there might be something that just is not matched for you. Um, And to get back to the original question of, like, what's an easy way to cut off time spent in the section and to know when to stop, it would be to, like, try some of these things and figure out, like, are these making for natural stopping points for me? Are these setups helping? And um, use that as a gauge for learning an intuitive stop point yeah there there are different styles and different ways of doing things and i remember uh, hearing or seeing uh, someone who was trying to catalog all the different habits and techniques of of top ceos for example top business people and what they found is that they didn't have that much in common for their morning routines for example there's a a wide variety of practices that people have and they're all successful, but they're all doing things in different ways. So they, that what that means is that there's probably multiple good ways of doing things, and you just find the style or, or technique that works for you. But try them out. Try out different ways of, of doing things. Just like there, we'll get to this at some point, I'm sure, but again, the idea of logical reasoning, reading the question stem first versus reading the stimulus first. I found that there are top scorers who do both ways, and that means that maybe there's not one right way or that neither way is wrong. Yeah, definitely. I think I actually do both. <laughs> now that I think about yeah. like, how I approach it, <laughs> I, it, it depends. Um, all right. So like, the next question is about logical reasoning. It's like, I have a question where I will freeze on this section, have to either read a passage over and over again, or unnecessarily diagram a question, which could be easily read and solved on the spot. Is there a way of knowing when it's actually necessary to diagram something, especially if I don't get it right away? Is there a way to predict an answer choice so I can save time on easy questions and spend the time I need on longer diagramming questions? 
Okay, so if you're asking, like, is there a way of knowing when it's actually necessary to diagram something, my short advice would be just, like, stop diagramming entirely. And then when a question feels like, oh, geez, this is, like, so hard to do without a diagram, then diagram that. I probably diagram, like, once a section or something. Like, it's actually not that, um, not that necessary. I do want to emphasize that, like, when you're reviewing stuff, you should try diagramming and see, like, does this fit here? Does this help? And just practice your diagramming so it becomes intuitive. But it's actually not that necessary and it's easy to fall into an over diagramming trap yeah i would agree i think that the vast majority of logical reasoning questions diagramming is not going to be that useful overall and then maybe a few questions it could be useful for analyzing the stimulus later or analyzing your question solving strategy later but in the moment for most questions it really is not useful i think that students tend to over diagram there are certain prep companies that will have you diagramming necessary assumption questions just to better quote unquote understand the stimulus when I would never diagram a necessary assumption question. I can't think of a single one that I would ever diagram. There's a very limited set of question types where I think it's useful to diagram sometimes and they would be, and tell me what you think on this gram, I would diagram some sufficient assumption questions, some must be true or inference questions and some parallel questions. There are some of those where I think it's actually enormously helpful to diagram, but even within those question types, I would not always diagram. Yeah, I would add to that list some principal ones, specifically the principal application questions. Um, yeah. But that's basically the whole list for me too. Um, yeah, so it's, and I find usually it's where there's like multiple things being chained together and it's just easier to get them out of your head and not have to remember all the factors. That's the most common thing for me for diagramming. And it occurs in those question types Steve listed. Sufficient, parallel, must be true. And then for me also, some principle. But not all of those. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like even within like sufficient assumption questions, for example, there are some, a lot of them actually, where the correct answer is simply a restatement or broadening of the stimulus itself or the contrapositive of the stimulus. And so for that, diagramming probably isn't going to do a whole lot for you. But then there are some questions with several conditional statements and even the conclusions are conditional. And then there's some filler thrown in there and it's tough to spot the conditional indicator words. And so mapping it out is useful because you're putting things in an order that works better for you. An example of a question that comes to mind here is the, the Wiggs question in test 58 it appears towards the end of one of the logical reasoning sections. And in that stimulus, you have lots of conditionals and they're appearing in all different orders. And so to parse that out, diagramming is really useful. But that's a, that's a unique example and there are not so many like that. Mm -hmm. So the second part is, is there a way to predict an answer choice so I can save time and easy questions and spend the time eating longer diagram questions? So this is called prephrasing. And... Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to describe it exactly like you know you can't just say like oh well you should prephrase questions because prephrasing is almost more like the end goal rather than the method as in if you fully understand the question and you know what's going on you can probably see that little like flaw in there or how things connect together and guess the answer but so it's it's the result of everything rather than the method but uh there, there is a way to do that and it's like one, just make sure you understand everything, uh, which is like, again, the hard part. But the second is you can actually just take a new section and drill doing this. So like you cover the answers, you don't look at them until you feel you've understood everything and you write down a prediction and then you look and see if that's there. So in other words, you're 
you're forcing your brain to go a bit beyond and try and get that understanding and try and get that prediction. Um, but that's the only shortcut Trevor, I know of saving time that way. Are there certain question types where you would recommend this strategy more than others? Uh, I feel like I do it everywhere, but I would say off the top of my head, uh, strengthen, weaken, flaw, must be true, sufficient assumption, principle justify. Um, I guess parallel reasoning, I'd do a different thing. I'm looking for like identifying the structure and then I skim the answers and I eliminate stuff that doesn't have that structure. So say the structure was joining two conditionals. If I see an answer and I see the word sum, I'll just, I won't say it's wrong, but I'll leave it aside. Um, so that's like, it feels like prephrasing, but I guess it's a bit different. Um, <laughs> what other question types are there? Identify the conclusion, definitely prephrase that. Method of reasoning, yep. Um, what else is there? Yeah, I mean, there, there are tons, but you, you covered the major ones. The reason I ask is that I think that my, you know, I might prephrase for all of those question types and more, but the way in which I'm prephrasing is different. Like for strength and weaken, for example, a lot of it comes down to alternative possibilities or explanations or the relevance of the evidence to the conclusion. But then for sufficient assumption, I'm actually thinking of those oftentimes more mechanically where I think of sufficient assumption questions as falling within a series of limited formats. It's like one I mentioned is like broadening or generalizations or the contrapositive of the stimulus. But then if there's that you know, classic disconnect between evidence and conclusion, I'll prephrase the answer as being a link between the evidence and conclusion, oftentimes in the form of a conditional statement or mm -hmm. in a more complex form, which that, that Wiggs question from test 58 is an example of this. You have multiple conditionals in the evidence, and then you're linking those evidence conditional statements together in order to justify the conclusion. So I'm prephrasing in a more mechanical way for sufficient assumption, whereas for strengthen and weaken and flaw or necessary assumption, I'm thinking of it more in an informal way where I'm engaging in a more real world conversational style with the stimulus. Hmm. Yeah, it's true. I guess I do do different prephrasing for different ones. If it's a flaw type question, I tend to try and think like, what's the conclusion? What's the reasoning? What's wrong with this? And then on the strength and weaken, like on the strength and you will fix what's wrong and the weaken you'll point out what's wrong. And on the flaw question, you'll abstractly describe what's wrong is how I think about those three. Um, Sufficient tends to be more mechanical for me. Like I will often draw those. I'll sort of draw the evidence apart, draw the conclusion apart, fill in the evidence, and there'll be like a little gap in there. And that's the conditional to look for. Um, most strongly supported and must be true. I'm, I guess, just trying to think what the information is and how it fits together, if at all. Um, for paradox, I, and most helps to explain, I'm trying to think about what's confusing about the situation and ways it might be resolved, but it's a, like a more vague thing than um, a strength and weaken where there's like usually a concrete flaw. And identify the conclusion, I guess I, I just really don't wanna move on until I know what the conclusion is, but I find those are usually easier than other question types just cause there's kind of like a limit on how hard you can make that. Yeah, yeah, those, are, those tend to be an easier type overall. I think that for inference questions like must be true and most supported, you actually, can't always prephrase in my experience at least i think a yeah. lot of the time they're they're kind of paraphrasing a random part of the stimulus that you couldn't necessarily have predicted especially when we're dealing with a fact set in the stimulus 
you don't always really know where they're going to draw from. For those, I actually more often use process of elimination. Oh, interesting. I don't find they're paraphrasing. I find they're always adding new information, but sometimes it could be something like, you know, if you say like Steve and as, as an LSAT tutor, they might say something like some people are LSAT tutors, which is technically a different statement, even though it like it yeah. feels basically the same thing. Um, I guess on nose, yeah, I would say my main work is clearly identifying the statements and trying to like condense them and rephrase them so that I sort of have them all in my head in a simpler form. Yeah, yeah, paraphr you know, and I, I think that's what a lot of this comes down to is being able to paraphrase, being able to put things in your own words. And then I think a lot of this in general about being able to predict comes down to familiarity, familiar familiarity with the essential methods of reasoning contained within a stimulus. Mm. And that overall really just comes from practice. It's a lot easier to predict the thousandth LSAT question you've done than the 50th question you've done. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with that. Um, the last part of their question was, I have a problem with all freeze on this section and you have to read a passage over and over again. Uh, that one's harder to diagnose. I just wanted to quickly comment on it. And I'm wondering if this person is either like not taking breaks or maybe like barreling through stress. Because if you're freezing, you're having like a little fight or flight response. And so what I find helpful when I'm like bubbling the answers when I turn the page, uh, so I'll usually like say it's logical reason, there's like seven questions on two pages. I'll just bubble all seven and take like some deep breaths while I do it. And it's like a nice relaxing thing. And then if I notice my mind get like a jolt, like sometimes I'll see a long parallel reasoning question say, and my mind will go like, ah, but like obviously it's not actually frightening. It's just longer and bigger. And so I'll just like, take a pause take a couple breaths and like acknowledge that my mind got spooked a little and just tell it like no it's fine um and that way i don't end up in a spot where i'm just totally spaced out and reading it over and over and stuck that way so i try and catch the problem early i think that's a great that's a great tip having those moments of reflection to be able to identify what's going on in your mind and distance yourself from that more primal instinct a little bit couple things on that mindfulness meditation really helps with focus and articulating for yourself what's going on in your head and having that distance another thing i like to do is bubbling in between questions as a kind of reset and letting go of the previous question moving on to the next one and final thing i would say on this is just going back to basics my my anchor is always what's the conclusion in the stimulus find the conclusion find the evidence, and then see what sort of gap there is, how reasonable is it, and evaluate it, and move on from there. And that's pretty much regardless of question type, of course, unless you're dealing with a fact set, but those are a pretty low percentage. Yeah, having a predefined method really helps you avoid freezing because you're just going through the routine. I strongly recommend it, and I definitely have my own. Uh, maybe we could talk about our methods at some like future episode um, for logical reasoning like in more depth but it's, it's very useful for just getting through that spinning your wheels bit. Yeah, definitely. And so I think we covered this one pretty thoroughly. Let's look at the next one, reading comprehension. I've noticed that a lot of questions are similar to that of LR, and I've worked to try and translate passages to more of a formula rather than that of content. Is there a way to translate some of the deductive methods in logical reasoning to that of reading comprehension. 
That's a great question. I think that you definitely don't want to get too mired in the content of a passage, especially on your initial read. But I don't think they're so formulaic that you could diagram them and approach them in a more deductive way. I think it's, again, one of those familiarity things where you can kind of have a general sense of where a passage is going, just as you might understand for, like, let's say, a scholarly article, the, the general flow in which things are, the direction in which things are likely to go. But I don't think they're as mathematical as the logical reasoning questions that you might want to diagram. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Like, there are structural words um, that you can use to sort of break up the content, but it's still based on the actual content in there. You know, maybe like author presents their theory of starfish evolution. Then they introduce contrary evidence. Then they make a counterpoint. You know, I, I can break it down into like a structure like that. But when I say in my head, then they make a counterpoint. I still want to know like what the counterpoint was. And the reason I'm being vague is because I don't have an actual starfish passage in front of me. But if I actually did, I would have like a more fleshed out content-based structure like it's it's a, me a blend of the two and so i think i think there's a, f a general flow that passages are likely to follow and of course they could go in a variety of directions but they're not going to go from talking about starfish to talking about aliens most likely there's going to be some degree of predictability overall in the flow with the structure but that's not necessarily going to even help you solve the questions for a lot of the times the questions are going to work by process of elimination or you're going to go back and want to find specific line references to support whatever you're choosing. But I don't think you can approach them in quite such a deductive way. I think LSAC really saves that mostly for logic games and then to some extent for logical reasoning as well. But reading comp is not just not as mathematical. I think it requires a different skill set. Yeah. Now, they did raise an interesting point where they say like a lot of the questions are similar to LR. And I've noticed this in the past, maybe, I don't know, five to seven exams where they're starting to have LR-like questions, like which of the following would strengthen the author's assertion in this and whatever. Uh, have you formalized your approach to this in any way? I tend to, I, honestly, I, I tend to recommend saving those questions for last and knocking out the easier ones earlier. Like I would say global ones, then local, then the more inferential outside the box questions, which I would say these logical reasoning questions fall into. So like strength and weaken, parallel, et cetera. I would approach them fairly similar to their logical reasoning counterparts. That's my short answer on that. Yeah, I think that's the real answer, actually. Like, because I can't think that I have a specific RC strategy for dealing with LR-like questions. My answer to them is just that I'm good at LR, and then that transfers. So, uh, if you're worried about that, then the answer is probably actually like get better at the underlying logical reasoning as well. It'll be like double, double bonus for getting it. You get better LR score, and you get better at the reading comp. But I don't think there's a specific LRRC method per se. Yeah, that's pretty much what I was going to say as well. I mean, logical reasoning is half the exam. So you want to be good at strength and you want to be good at weaken and you want to be good at parallel, even though it's harder, of course. But you, if you're good at those, then those skills will carry over for reading comp. Yeah, I guess like the one thing I would add is that people sometimes read uh, reading comprehension more loosely than they do LR. But when you're answering like an LR reading comp question, you need to have a really solid understanding. And so, you know, if it says like, how would we strengthen the author's assertion here? Or what's parallel to the way they did this here? Like go back and read that in the passage and make sure you're really clear in the details. Like um, I, I generally recommend this for like a lot of questions because uh, I think it actually speeds you up. 
but it's especially vital on these logical reasoning ones, which are going to be very detail-based. And so you just need to do the same thing you would do on LR, which is know the stimulus. Just make sure you actually apply that knowledge in the context of reading comp where you might be like looser on it. Yeah, I agree. Reading comp, the fact that it's a longer passage doesn't give you license to make things up or to stray, <laughs> or to stray significantly farther from the text. You know, it's, it's 450 words or 500 words or whatever it is, but you still got to go there and hunt maybe after the exam, hunt for the specific line references that support what you're choosing. But the answer is there, even for those more inferential questions that are what the author would be most likely to agree with. The information is there. Reading between the lines doesn't mean you're making it up. It is there within the passage. And so you've got to be able to find that. And it's a little bit harder to spot than it is for logical reasoning, maybe. And that's why coming back to process of elimination is a useful strategy here, I think, more so than in any other section. Yeah. All right. So we've still got some time left. So I guess we can go on to another question. Uh, yeah, sure. So this one is, there can be many components to a logic game like sequencing, grouping, outgroup, or I have to consider scenarios when there are different numbers of things in each group. After I've made the obvious inference, how do I know which of those elements I should focus on now? I would love to have an algorithm in my head that would tell me what my next step is in cracking a logic game, depending on what I have in front of me on the page. I'm not sure I actually... Um, hmm. I, I feel like the algorithm for me is more like when I see a sequencing thing, I know what kind of setup to do. But once I've done that setup, I don't think I do anything specific. I'm not sure. I'd, I'd, maybe I have to think about this question more. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think I think the idea here comes back to as if you could have an algorithm that would allow you to know exactly what to do for any given game type. So let's say that for sequencing games always do X and for grouping games always do Y. And my, my thought on this just quickly is that it's, it's not quite that predict predictable. It's not as if there are only three to five exact types of games that are all identical to each other just with variables changed. I think games are a little bit more creative when they're, they're LSAC is more creative when making logic games where they take all different forms and no two diagram, you know, it's rare that two diagrams will look identical. I've noticed some cases where there are logic games that are incredibly similar to each other where it's as if LSAC just went to exam number 30 and reused the game. And if all games were like those two, then you could know exactly what to do. But I think that, if anything, logic games more so now than ever requires flexibility and creativity and having an adaptive approach to something that appears new at first glance. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it's I think it's more pattern matching than an algorithm. And like you said, with like flexibility, they often have multiple of these types within a single game now, randomly combined. So I think it's just if you really master some of the game types so you have those patterns and you know like roughly what they'll do when there's an inner grouping game so you're just prepared for it like i think it's more analogous to how you know you've met many people in your life and many different kinds of people so when you meet a new person you can sort of think like oh this is like an outgoing person or oh this person's shy or oh this person uh is whatever you know you, you have like a bit of a model of like the types of humans you might meet and everyone's different but most you are rarely once you reach a certain age you're rarely like thoroughly surprised by a new type of person you just you know roughly the 
um, the types that you'll meet. And you want to be the same thing with games so that like, you know, roughly what to do if you've got a sequencing game, just like, you know, that you shouldn't like be super, super, super outgoing when you're faced with like a shy person, or sorry, I mean, you shouldn't keep a introvert talking like way longer than <laughs> when they look obviously tired, but it might work with an extrovert. You know roughly what to do in that situation, you know roughly what to do with, with games. So I think it just comes down to getting more familiarity and then you sort of have the knowledge, but it's not like a consciously applied algorithm. Yeah, I really like that analogy, Grim. It's like an analogy to like different types of people. So to carry it further, if you had Myers-Briggs or you had the big five personality traits, those are general frameworks. They're general categories, but they don't tell you everything about somebody. Then, of course, you have someone of a different, a particular personality type in a particular situation. They, they are not going to act in a perfectly predictable way. Mm. There are certain trends you're likely to see in their behavior if they're outgoing or they're an introvert or they're creative or conscientious there are certain frameworks that you could guess where they're likely to go or how they're likely to behave but you don't know with 100 percent certainty and there still is the random chaos of life just as within a game there are do very you have a game type but then there are specific rules and then there are different question stems then you have the rule substitution question all of those require you to adapt to being to what's being thrown at you that's a really good analogy that like Myers-Briggs categories are descriptive, but not prescriptive. If I'm saying that right, and they'll tell you like roughly what it's like, but they're not going to help you predict necessarily. So, you know, if you're doing a game and it's like, they just do something totally random for a sequencing game. You have to, you have to just be like, Oh, well, I guess this is what they're doing now. <laughs> like <laughs> new logic games. That's how they're going. Cause they're breaking all the old patterns. Cause see, they know that you're studying for this test and people are studying more and they're like memorizing all the stuff. So they need to throw you curveballs. Um, there's both the like highly unusual games, but even the regular games have been getting less regular. So you can't just, uh, there ultimately will be like an unconscious algorithm if you're really good at knowing all the patterns, but there's no conscious thing you can learn, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And just to come back to the curveball game thing, since you mentioned it in passing, to come back to the first question we, we addressed today, going back to the oldest exams, exams like one through 19, for example, those are of limited usefulness, but one particular useful thing about them is that they contain a lot of unusual seeming games. And so if you want to throw yourself some curveballs, that's a good place to look. But the very fact that there are curveballs suggests that there are not perfect algorithms that are like formulas. Like I was describing earlier for a sufficient assumption question, we were talking about formulas. Logic games are not quite so predictable that there are a limited set of, let's say, like a half dozen formulas to use. Games are more varied than that. So they will require you to be adaptive more so than ever before as we get into the newer exams. Yeah. That said, I should say that in specific circumstances, there are like little mini algorithms that I do. So, you know, if a question says new rule, uh, Q is in three, what could be true? My algorithm will be to draw Q in three, refer to my rules and see what else has to be true. Do that, refer to my rules, do the next deduction. Once I reach a stopping point, check if I answered the question, keep going if I didn't. And so like, it is like a step-by-step -step algorithm in that case. And I could probably think of like a couple other things where like, I don't know if, if I suddenly see that like a three group game has shut off to two, I should check my rules and see if like there's any two people can't go together kind of things. Um, there are things like that, but again, that's also just, I'd say falls under pattern matching. And if you 
really go through a bunch of past game types and really review the questions and start to look for like how do they handle shortcuts through these questions that's how you learn those little mini algorithms yeah and i think that comes back to just what's your general approach like my algorithm for logical reasoning might be to id the conclusion then id the evidence consider the method of reasoning consider how reasonable is it consider the the size or the nature of the gap just as you're saying for a, a games question you take a local limitation you apply it to your diagram and then you you see what the chain of consequences will be but I don't think that's necessarily essential to the game itself. That's not the that's not the structure of the game. That's the structure of of what of how you're handling a question that's being thrown at you. So I, I do see a small distinction there. Oh yeah, that's a very good point. That like there are I think there are some things where there's basically just one way or one good way, but then there's a whole lot of other things where it's just like this is how you personally handle it. And you have your own personal algorithms, but it's not like someone can give you a manual and be like, these are the, these are the 15 anointed algorithms that you must learn. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So thanks everyone for listening. And um, what's the best way to reach you, Graham? Uh, the best way is to go to my site, lsathacks.com. And you can check out my explanations there or find the contact form on the about page. Or you can find me on Instagram, Graham underscore Blake. And again, I'm Steve Schwartz. You can find me through the LSAT blog. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. But email's typically the best way to reach me, and you'll find that information on my, on my website. Great. All right. Till next time.